Hey, everybody, and welcome to EdSoul, a podcast for educators by educators. Each episode, we bring you insights, techniques, and strategies rooted in research that you can put into practice in your classroom right away. I'm your host, Rachel Logan. Hello, my friends. Sourceful is here to come alongside you on your professional journey as an educator and help you achieve your goals as you work to boost student success. Today, you are going to hear from an external guest and resource, Carrie Yates, co-author of Shifting the Balance, Six Ways to Bring the Science of Reading into the Balanced Literacy Classroom, both for grades K-2 and 3-5. We're honored to bring you this timely and important literacy conversation. Carrie has extensive knowledge and experience on this topic, and we are thrilled to have her as a guest. We invite you to stay curious and use this conversation as it fits in your own work and journey. We're glad you're here. Let's get to it. Hey, soulmates. I am so excited to bring this conversation to you today. If you listened to our previous episode um, in season one, no, season two, yes, We're in season three right now. It's very exciting. If you listen to our episode in season two, we had a couple episodes released on the future of literacy. And you may remember if you listen that the topic of literacy is near and dear to my heart personally as a former reading teacher, coach, and specialist. Um, And there's been a lot that has been shared about the best ways to instruct children in the ways of reading. And today, I am joined by Carrie Yates, who is going to help us unpack some misunderstandings and guide us in some research-based directions on how to do this well. So let me introduce you to Carrie. Carrie Yates is an author, speaker, and consultant with a passion for helping busy literacy educators thrive. Oof, don't we need that? Carrie's (laughs) Carrie's most recent book, Shifting the Balance, Six Ways to Bring the Science of Reading into the Balanced Literacy Classroom is co-authored with Jan Birkins. Carrie has previously written two other books to support literacy educators. And I believe we have those in our Edsel library, and I will share links on where you can find those books as well um, if you are looking for additional support here. Um, Carrie has experience as a classroom teacher in special education, reading recovery teacher, an elementary principal, and district administrator. And so with this experience and expertise, she helps teachers and school leaders shape brighter outcomes for children one thoughtful next step at a time. Carrie also has two daughters and four grandchildren and lives on the lake in Minnesota with her husband, John. So welcome, Carrie. So glad to have you here on Edsel. I'm so glad to be here and thank you for inviting me. And how cool is that that you greet everybody as soulmates? I'm I'm loving it. Well, we feel like education is really soul work. It's a calling. Um, Absolutely. Your heart and soul goes into it. And so now you are a soulmate as well for being on the Edsel podcast. We're speaking our love language there. <laughs> we you know, we we often say this this work of thinking about, you know, more science-aligned, effective literacy practices, it is head work. It's Mm -hmm. academic, um, but it's also really heart work. And it is work of the soul. And some of it really calls on us to sort of dig deep within ourselves, to embrace some vulnerability. And so we do think of it as heart work and definitely soul work. So I'm glad to to talk about it. Beautiful. Well, you're going to lead me right into that. Oh, go ahead. Can I add one thing from the intro? Because oh, yes. actually our most recent book just came out very recently is Shifting the Balance, um, Six Ways to Bring Science Reading into the Upper Elementary Classroom. And so now we've really got that Shifting the Balance, um, you know, helping educators from K through grade five think about what would be some some important shifts to practice to make make learning to read easier. Yes, thank you for that addition because that that we're gonna jump into that specific text. But I think yeah, that's super important. That what, no matter where you're at in that elementary K six, um, Carrie and Jen have you covered? <laughs> have some supports you know, well, for and, you. I don't want to. Um, I don't want to get stuck on that book, but it was such a great experience to write this second book. Um, and we had a third author, Katie Cunningham, um, join us for that work and. We really, by the end, were saying to ourselves, wow, we wish these books didn't have labels, K2, 3, 5, mm. because 
we really think of them as sort of a continuum yeah. and really a continuum of how to support teachers in grades K through five, whether you're working with really beginning teacher, really beginning readers or, you know, readers who a little bit more have their feet under them. But mm-hmm. um, it's been a, it's been another really exciting and fun learning experience to put that book into the world. Oh, well, I can't wait to dive more into some of the specifics of that. I, I love to start and you've kind of dipped your toe into this already, but I love to start with hearing about how folks are personally connected to the work that they do um, and naming that why. So when you think of, I mean, you've had many roles um, and experiences across uh, education and now really leaning into this literacy work. What is your why? What drives you behind this work? I I appreciate that question. I appreciate starting with that question. And, you know, my why is children. And my why is really the children in my life. Um, literacy, although I've been an educator from, you know, regular classroom to special ed, I've been an educator for a long time, but literacy has always been the pull in that work, right? No matter what my role was, even as a building principal or a district administrator, literacy always was this this pull for me. And, and I think it is, it's because of the children in my life who, I mean, I've, I've, I've known lots of children who have just taken off, they become bookworms. And, you know, they've, they've sort of um, realized that dream of, you know, becoming these really blossoming readers. And then I've known lots of children who also have just not gotten off to that easy start Mm -hmm. with reading. Even within, you know, Within the same household, it has often struck me how children, um, how from the same household, two children might have completely different um, experience with becoming a reader and or, you know, deciding who they are as readers. As a classroom teacher, I, I just wanted kids to be excited about reading and engaged as reading as readers. But as a special ed teacher and as a reading recovery teacher, I saw up close that everyday frustration of struggling readers. Mm -hmm. And I I really felt the frustration myself of sort of doing all that I knew to do and still uh, knowing that children weren't seeing the progress that I knew many of them deserved. Um, So as a building administrator, I saw teachers sort of struggling that same way I knew I had, right? Mm. Like you said, we put our heart and soul into our practice every day. And I know that teachers want nothing more than to enact the very most effective, most brain-friendly, most kid-friendly practices possible. Um, And so it's just an interest and a passion of mine to try to, you know, support other educators in figuring out how to do that. Nice. So, I mean, obviously... Yeah. I mean, we just know that literacy is power, right? Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. without it, outcomes and opportunities, um, the ceiling of possibility sort of closes in on kids. And, and so this is really important work. It's, it's life changing work to help children become readers. Right. No, I, that is not an understatement. (laughs) I mean, that is that it is life changing work. And, and you've, like you said, and you've done this work one-on-one firsthand or with classrooms and you've and you've led buildings and led educators and now you're still leading in through the work that you're putting out and sharing with us and so I want to kind of dive into like you said you just released the um three six three five sorry it's your five the second shift in the balance book yeah and um and you just shared also that the k2 is available on audio now we're so excited the (laughs) k2 is available on audio so, so more ways to access, but um, yeah, I would love to hear um, kind of the genesis behind the books. So, um, the title again is "Shifting the Balance," and then it was kind of nested in this science of reading conversations that have been hot, right? If you've been following the literacy world for the last couple of years, those have been some heated conversations. So, um, do you mind sharing a little bit about like? your yeah. kind of why for writing the book or what sparked that yeah. journey. Yeah. You know, it's interesting because writing the book, writing the book is one thing and titling a book is a whole other thing. Oh. Yeah. And we really, 
worked and agonized on the title of this book um, because we knew right from the get-go there were some things that were important to us to to really get right in terms of um, saying what this book is about. Mm-hmm. And really, this book or both of these books now, you know, they're they're born out of the recog- the recognition that you know maybe there are some things that have been a little bit out of balance in some of our classrooms. And you've mentioned this sort of, you know, contentious conversation that's been going on for a number of years now about current practices and, you know, what we're getting right or what we're getting wrong about the kinds of instruction we've got going on in our elementary literacy classrooms. And the first book was written well, because Jan, first of all, convinced me <laughs> to get a partner with her as she, you know, we just kind of agreed to dig into the research together and to try to figure out, like, what what are we missing here? Or what's really going on in this conversation that two groups can see this so very differently and there's just such, you know, just such this renewed sense of reading wars. Mm-hmm. And we did dig in together. Um, and I always say, if I'm honest, the reason I agreed to dig in was because I was I was feeling pretty defensive and a little put off by some of what was being said. And I wanted to educate myself to put forward a better argument mm. in defense practices. Mm. Wanted to be able to be more articulate and more sure of myself in defending some of the practices that, you know, had been near and dear to me that were under attack. But what happened along the way was, as we took that deep dive, what we discovered was, wow, there were some things there that we hadn't understood. And there were some things there that there was some strong evidence that, in fact, yeah, some of the conversation about current practices was grounded mm-hmm. in research. And so it caused us to, first of all, sort of go like gulp. Because um, yes, I've, you know, I've led in schools and in districts and I've also done, you know, I've written other books. I've done a lot of professional development with teachers. I mean, I've dedicated a career to, to um, in whatever way I could, um, supporting more effective literacy practices But now what both Jan and I were sort of forced to face was that some of the practices we had been engaged in ourselves and encouraging other educators to engage in, like, wow, we had to take another look at them. Mm. And that, you know, it's it's vulnerable work. It's definitely soul work. Um, But that's that's where the books came from. And when we took that deep dive, we sort of started to think, okay, I can still remember um, my mom, um, she was gone for the winter and, um, we used her condo as a place to, I think on a long weekend spread out and had chart paper up all over the place and kind of the chart paper sort of made clear to us. We're trying to make sense of all of this. Mm-hmm. And it's like, oh yeah, it's really six topics here. There's kind of six buckets of okay. what's really mind. And so that's mm-hmm. kind of where the the six, um, the six ways. Um, so there's bring- nothing magic about six. That's as you looked through all the information and you were looking for themes and bucketing things. You these six kind of appeared to you, or you know, six six appeared to us. Now, um, since that, we've developed a real love of the number six. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So our site is the sixshifts.com. The second book, we're like, well, we we need it to just be six mm-hmm, again, right? Mm-hmm. So where we bundle what we're going to say, we're going to bundle it into six buckets again. Um, we've got our six commitments. I actually did um I I did a little checking on this um a while back, just like what is the significance of the number six? Why yeah. is it that we find ourselves drawn to it or ending up there? And um, what I learned was that the number six is associated with things like love, nurturing, service to others, emotional healing, and stability. Oh, wow. Which really all resonated with us in this work. So we wish we could say we were smart enough to know about the number six before 
it happened, but we it, weren't. It came no. to you. Honest, <laughs> it came to us. So yeah. let's go back to those commitments because I I have had the opportunity to sit in on some professional learning around both of your two books, and you always begin with sharing those commitments. And I don't want to speak for you, so tell me if I'm getting this wrong. But I mean, you kind of set those commitments as authors and researchers first, right? And but then you share them with your learners and participants. So can you talk a little bit about what those commitments are and why why it was important to you not only for yourselves, but then to to carry that forward, kind of bring that backstage, front stage, yeah. if you will. You know, um if you know Jan Birkins, um she is a force to reckon with and she is um persuasive. And so, you know, the first thing she did was persuade me that we should just take a deep dive into this research together. Then the next thing she did was persuade me that we should play with the idea of, you know, writing about it and um, do a book proposal. And that was a really, it was hard to get me to yes on that. She often teases me. Like I start off, like I'm an absolute hard no, like I'll be a <laughs> absolutely no, yeah. I'm not going to do this because basically this feels like just stepping up and saying to the world, yep, <laughs> we're really wrong about some things mm. and um, felt really scary. And, and it is, it has been scary work. Um, and so, but I did eventually say yes. And then Jan and I, who had been good friends for a long time, sort of literacy friends, right? We came to know each other in the literacy sphere. Now we are figuring out how to write together. And writing is hard work. Mm -hmm. And um, writing with a partner is hard work squared, I think. <laughs> right. And, like you should load some, mm -hmm. but um, writing is really vulnerable, personal work, I think. And so we were writing about a hard topic and we were writing together for the first time. And we were running into a lot of vulnerability, um, just a lot of vulnerability. And we kind of said, we've got to sort of create, I mean, I think the first thing we said is got to sort of create some norms and norms felt a little too stiff um, for us. But we decided there were some, you know, commitments. What are the commitments we're going to make to each other, um, to ourselves and each other? And so we wrote these six commitments and they were kind of the first thing we wrote together that kind of stuck, if I could say it like that. Um, but they've, I mean, they become a part of our work that I think even if you don't, if literacy isn't your area, um, even if you're not an educator, we think that these six commitments have something to offer, especially because we live in such a polarized era. Mm-hmm. We're all having chances all the time, I think, to grapple with, um, well, just some of the vulnerability of um, being, um, learning is vulnerable work. Mm -hmm. Let's just, mm -hmm. so I'd love to share them with you if you're open to it. I, I was going to ask you to do that. I've, the one that's sticking out to me is the curious over certain. Um, that has, like you said, I feel like you can apply that to so many areas of the human experience, um, literacy, certainly. But yes, I would love for you to share what some of those are. And, and you know, that curiosity versus certainty, that that bit, and we, we share that in what we sometimes, we refer to as um, bridges and walls. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, some of the ways we put up bridges that slow, or I'm sorry, walls that slow the work down or bridges that can move the work forward. Mm -hmm. And this idea of certainty versus curiosity. I mean, when we started off in this journey, we were really certain of some things. And what happened is that certainty got sort of shaken. Mm -hmm. right? Thinking about certainty and curiosity, we, we really came on to that by reading the work of Adam Grant and especially his book, Think Again, The Power of Knowing What You Don't Know. And, and one of the things he explains there is that there's this inverse relationship between certainty and curiosity. Mm. And the more certain or sure of yourself are, you are, the less space you'll make for curiosity. Mm. But when your certainty kind of comes down a bit, you create more space for yeah. curiosity. Nice. And so, I mean, that's what we hope 
to do in a kind and gentle way in our work is invite people to kind of reevaluate some things they might feel really certain of and make space for more curiosity. Nice. And these six commitments, um, uh, we commit to being kind to ourselves, making peace with the unavoidable reality that there are things we have missed, misunderstood, and misinterpreted. And we commit to honestly appraising our current practices with an open heart and an open mind. And we commit to recognizing and reflecting on our own triggers and biases. We have lots of those. Mm -hmm. We commit to actively working to lower our defenses so we can raise our awareness. We commit to reconsidering, reprioritizing, or simply letting go of less helpful practices in order to make space for some that are more effective. And we commit to taking action rather than giving into the paralysis of self-doubt and or overwhelm, which that last one, I mean, overwhelm comes easily, I think, mm-hmm. especially, you know, on this topic of, well, let's take a look at current practices. There are some things we need to reconsider. Easy to get overwhelmed, but Absolutely. Um, we just always want to encourage people like, but just find a starting point. Just mm-hmm. just find that one thing that you're going to make a shift um, toward and, and start there. Nice. I, so, I just think, I appreciate, oh, sorry, go ahead, Carrie. Those are the six commitments. Well, I'm I'm glad that you shared them because I feel like, you know, you might want to rewind and listen to those again, or maybe I can link those where people can find them written yeah. out. Because I, I think even as a, you know, if you're working as a professional learning community or as a grade level team or at a building staff meeting, I mean, lean into those. Those would be great commitments that you could borrow and use and apply in your own professional setting for whatever your topic is. I mean, it might be literacy, but maybe you're looking at a math resource adoption or or whatever it is, you know, to just be open. And like you said, vulnerable, that takes a lot of humility to say, yeah, I may have gotten something wrong, but instead of digging my heels in, I'm going to look at this from another angle or or another perspective or another research piece and say, okay, what, what could I be missing or how could I make this even better? We do have them on our website and our website is shifts.com and we have a download section there. Um, So a downloads tab. Okay. We've got dozens of downloads there to support all of the shifts in both of the books, but the six commitments are there and you can print them as a one pager. Like you could just post it and have it Mm, handy. Nice. We also like to point out they're there as a um, adult coloring bookmarks. Oh, so nice. educator by the name of Kim Harkreader designed a little bookmark for each of these commitments. And so that prints on two pages. You could cut them apart. I always like to sort of jokingly say, and they attach really nicely to a full-size chocolate bar of your choice. Oh, there you go. Or, you know, stick them in a, a mailbox, spread them on the table um, at a you know, a team meeting, we have known lots of teams who have adopted these six commitments as, as a way of um, keeping themselves and each other safe. Mm -hmm. There's this recent research that Google did on um, what makes teams effective. I think 200 plus teams they studied over, I'm not going to get it right, but a, a period of time. Anyway, the number one thing that they found that makes teams effective is psychological safety. Mm. And to us, that's what these six shifts are about. They're about creating psychological safety for yourself and for those around you. And the work of school improvement is, you know, it's change work. And change work is vulnerable work. Mm -hmm. Yes, it absolutely is. So let's, let's talk about, as you dug in here... Um, you know, where where were some places that you felt affirmed in some literary, literacy practices? You know, I'm thinking of the whole, like, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, you know, phrase. Yeah, sure. Um, and then where were some of the biggest shifts for you personally where it was kind of like, oh, shoot. Um, I think we've all had those moments as educators where like, oh, if I could go back to that first year, if I could go back to that one class, um, 
What did you yeah. kind of bump into as you were digging into the research and, and writing? Yeah, I, I love this question. And I love you. You um, bring to the forefront that um, it's not our intention to suggest it's time to throw out the baby with the bathwater and start fresh on all of our practices. In fact, at the heart of our work is wanting to encourage educators to, as if you were to read the book or take the class or, you know, spend a day with us in professional development, that you would come away identifying some practices that you really want to celebrate and and hold on to. Um, and then some that, you know, maybe you've, you're thinking, oh, yeah, I could polish that up or spiff that up a little bit. It's something I've been doing, but maybe there's a way to make it even more effective. And a bucket for those that, uh oh, we got to just let go of that. Mm -hmm. You said, oh, shoot. Sometimes say, oh, shift. <laughs> oh, there we go. Yes. <laughs> oh, shift. <laughs> oh, shift. Um, <laughs> got to let that one go. And then some practices that you might, you know, they might be new to you and, and you and you bring them in. And for us, I think, as we dug into the research, it was a mix of all of those things, right? Okay. There were some practices that we were like, wow, yep, um, time to do that differently or stop doing that. And um, and others where it's just like, oh, wow, didn't really know or understand that in that way. And the first one that comes to mind for me is, you know, talking about creating psychological safety in the classroom. And I've always really valued, you know, connection and conversation and the power of oral language development. I'm an early childhood educator at heart. And so, you know, oral language development is just kind of baked into how I, how I think about, you know, setting up a, a classroom environment. But what I wasn't really clear on or hadn't really ever put together was just the ways that our eventual reading piggybacks on the oral language that we've developed. Mm -hmm. And that as we're helping children develop oral language, we actually are, we're priming reading comprehension. And one thing for me that, that was a shift in thinking was, I always thought of reading comprehension as like a, mostly a reading problem, but really this idea that, you know, first and foremost, reading comprehension, I mean, it depends on being able to read the print, but it depends on being able to understand the language and the real importance of oral language development, vocabulary, and intentional knowledge building, mm. you know. So many of our classrooms, I think, have become knowledge neutral. And I know I've sometimes been of the mind, well, it's not so much that we teach kids specific stuff or facts, but we we help them learn how to learn. Mm -hmm. And actually, it turns out, no, they need to know more than how to learn. They actually need some specific knowledge. And that background knowledge um, is one of the most um, sig significant factors when it comes to comprehension. You know, knowing something about a topic to begin with actually sets you up to um, sets you up for a more um, successful comprehension. All right, I'm having so, that Velcro image in my brain uh, from one of your trainings about if there's yeah. nothing to stick it to. Can you like explain? Yes, yeah, so the Velcro um, analogy comes from Marilyn Adams. Um, a reading researcher, and she says, you know, you can kind of think about, uh, you can kind of think about prior knowledge as Velcro in your brain. And if I am, um, well, I'm, I'm going to read about literacy. I'm going to read about reading comprehension. <laughs> um, if I'm not an educator, I don't really know anything about that. It's going to be much more difficult for me to understand that passage. Mm -hmm. But if when I'm an educator, I have this little strip of Velcro and it's got some things stuck to it. It's it's what I already know about reading comprehension. This is getting really meta, right? Mm -hmm. uh, but um, the stuff I already know kind of sticks to that Velcro. And so if I have just a little bit of a Velcro, little bit of Velcro on a topic, when I go in to read about it, it becomes like a placeholder for other things I learn about that topic to, to stick to. Mm -hmm. right? mm -hmm. Too often in the classroom, when we've been focused on, well, we're just going to teach 
reading comprehension strategies, and we'll do that with a whole variety of types of passages and topics. Well, kids may not know much at all about one of the topics, and we may miss the opportunity to build a little background knowledge before they read that topic, which really sets them up to not be able to use their comprehension strategies effectively. Right. It turns out that knowledge is at least as important as comprehension strategies when it comes to comprehension. So getting intentional about building knowledge and then considering before kids read things, okay, what can I do to make sure everybody has at least a little bit of Velcro going into this? So everybody has a little bit of a spot to, yeah. you know, stick additional knowledge to. Which when you so, Yeah, go ahead. Well, when you say that, it sounds like, duh, you know, like, it seems like that sounds obvious. However, I'm thinking back to myself, how often in my, I'm going to go to like my fifth grade classroom, was I probably misdiagnosing an inference uh, gap, you know, thinking like, oh, these students are really struggling with inferencing when really it's very difficult to make an inference about something that you have absolutely no content or background knowledge about. If I would have you know, assessed a skill on something where there was some background knowledge, I probably would have been able to diagnose a little bit easier. Is this an inferencing gap that we need to work on? Or is this simply a content gap where I'm asking them to perform a reading strategy on something that they have no context about? (laughs) So, and that's, it turns out kids, I mean, kids are pretty good at inferring. Oh, okay. Right. When it's a topic that um, that they know about. Right. Right. Yes. I mean, often, often that's such a great example because we might, you know, take lots of practice with inferring, inferring, inferring. But actually, if we took some of that time that we're using teaching that inferring strategy and giving lots of practice with inferring and instead took it and made sure we were building some solid knowledge in intentional ways. Mm-hmm kids would be able to make more and better inferences if they had the knowledge they needed for the topics they're reading about. Yeah. I'm just so even- that's one. And that one has to do, I mean, in, in the first book, that's really what shift one is all about. In the second book, we kind of stretch knowledge building and strategy instruction across shifts one and two. Um, shift, um, shift four in the first book is about uh, sight words. Mm, um, yes. We That's through the lens topic. of high frequency word learning. Mm, yeah. I've often used, you know, throughout my career, I probably use sight words and high frequency words, those terms pretty interchangeably, but turns out no. You know, sight words are sort of, sight word is sort of a status that a word earns, and any word can become a sight word. It's not just a high frequency word. Uh, and that we've maybe been really missing the boat on how we have helped children. Um, learn to recognize and spell, especially those irregularly spelled words. And when we've said things to kids like, hey, you know, you can't really decode that one. That one doesn't really make sense. You just have to memorize it. You have to know it by heart. Actually, we've been telling a lie. Mm. <laughs> that's not really true. And that's that's not how the brain learns. The brain actually has to make sense of every word it's actually going to store. It has to make sense of it through a process called orthographic mapping, a term I had never heard of probably until five years ago. Um, But because of that, uh, shift four in the K2 book, and this is kind of combined into shift, um, uh, shift, shift four also in the um, three through six book or three through five book, um, reevaluating how we help children learn words. And we teach some kind of really high utility, pretty simple processes, but they pull in the important work of aligning sounds and spellings in a way that maybe we've kind of missed the boat on sometimes in the past. Yeah. And so we teach how to support orthographic mapping. Would you and then of course yeah, go ahead. Would you um do like a real quick like live coaching session with me? <laughs> Sure. So I have a first grade daughter. She we're we're um she's writing last night, she's spelling the word what. Okay, and she's spelling it what W U T. Yeah. She's listening for sounds. So we're having the conversation. Well, you know, you're working on the W H together makes a 
So you're going to hear that in what? And then it does sound like a, uh, uh, like a U. But in yep. this case, it's actually an A. So it kind of looks like at, what? But we say what? Oh, can you give me some feedback on that? <laughs> that coach, well, like, you're doing the right thing when you're trying to help her make sense of the goofy parts. Okay. Right? Yeah. Um, we, you, some, um, there's there's a lot of use of the term the term heart, heart words and using a heart to sort of you know mark the part that's unexpected or surprised. Okay, we like to use a, a surprise face, just like a surprise face icon to okay. mark that part of an irregularly spelled word that is a surprise. Yeah, yeah. But so much good is going on there. I mean, right from the start, your daughter is listening to that word and identifying there are three sounds there. Yep. Right. What three sounds? And so if we want to help kids think about the sound spellings for that word, um, we love to lean into sound boxes or Elkonin boxes. So mm-hmm. I'd say to her, okay, three sounds, so let's make three boxes. And it's like a long rectangle divided into three spots. Yep. So three sounds, three boxes. Now, you know, touch a box and say each sound again. What? Now we're going to think about which spellings represent each of these sounds. With an irregularly spelled word, you might just say, you know, here's the here are the letters in what. Let's think about how they might go into these boxes. Okay. Essentially, you you want and the power of those boxes is once you get those spellings into those boxes, it's giving the brain sort of a scaffold for thinking about that alignment. And then you you might mark that vowel sound that is not what we would expect. Mark it somehow. It could be a star or a you know, whatever, a heart or a surprise or a frog for that matter. But <laughs> something, you're just marking like, yeah, this part was really unexpected. Mm. And really that word, depending on how you say it. Oh, I'm sure you we got may some regional w- dialect going on. W. Pardon me? I said there might be some regional dialect going on there. Well, I mean, that WH, you may or may not, a child may or may not say that in a way that sounds any different from just a you know, a W spelling. Yeah. What, yeah. what, I don't know if I say what and was that first sound any different in mm-hmm, the two of those, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, but some people might say more of a what, and that might be a regional dialect thing. Yeah. Anyway, um, what you want to do is give her as many opportunities though as possible. So once you, you know, might have her use her finger to touch those boxes and then you're going to get those sounds written into those boxes and have her again, say those sounds slowly and touch those boxes and then take the boxes away and have her write it again, saying the sounds while she writes the letters, not saying the letters. Mm-hmm. And too much in the past, we've had kids sort of chant letters like you have to memorize it, W-H-A-T. Mm-hmm. But no. In orthographic mapping, what the brain has to do is make sense of that phonemic path across the word. So the phonemes, the sounds, um, it's got to get the phonemes, the sounds, and the graphemes aligned. I sometimes think about sort of like a geometric proof. The brain has to prove to itself, okay, even if the letters don't make sense, why, how mm. do these letters mm-hmm. spell this word? Versus saying... Yeah, it doesn't make sense. You just have to memorize it. No, actually, we have to help kids make sense of every word, no matter how irregular. And so that can be a real game changer for kids. Nice. Thank you. I think that's a perfect and accessible example that a lot of teachers can can lean into as well. And I can link something on Elkhorn and Boxes in our show notes, too, if that is. If, yeah, or, or do you have that? Maybe you have that on your site as well. You know, we have on our uh, three... Grade three through five downloads, we have a tool to support the use of sound boxes. Um, I think we have the routine. Uh, we have the routine for teaching irregularly spelled words, I think, on the on the K2 downloads. But you asked about practices that sort of smacked us in the face. And yeah. it would be if I didn't say, you know, shift five in the first book, which is about prompting practices. And it's about you know, our use of what you might refer to as MSV or three queuing systems mm-hmm. or multiple sources of information. And this for me, as a trained reading recovery teacher, as somebody who had, you know, really worked in and brought Fontes and Pinnell and Jan Richardson and lots of um, lots of systems to schools that that drew heavily on the use of multiple sources of information. This shift was one that 
I mean, to say I lost sleep over it would be a real understatement. This mm-hmm. one was like painful. Like, I know I must have said to Jan, you know, dozens of times, like, are we really going to write this chapter? Like, mm-hmm. can we really write this chapter? Because this is the topic that I think there's just so much contention around this topic. And as you hear me talk about it, you might think, well, I'm going to get the book and I'm going to dive into Shift 5 and see what all the fuss is about and what what are they saying about this. But actually, we would really recommend against that because the way we built the book was um, to sort of unpack the science about how the brain learns to read um, starting in Shift 1 and and sequentially sort of layering on to that across so that by the time you get to shift five, by the time you're thinking about prompting practices, you have the background knowledge that you need. You've got some Velcro uh, to sort of stick on what that chapter is about. And that chapter is about, um, you know, really consistently teaching children to rely on the print as the path to, um, to decode words. Mm -hmm. Um, in a way that will feel pretty different to lots of folks. Um, but so, so that was a real, that was the biggest one for me. That was an O shift. <laughs> that was, uh, um, I mean, I get almost a little, I get almost a little anxious reliving how anxious I felt mm. about writing about this. I mean, we really knew we were like going to lose friends over this. I mean, that, that sounds like an exaggeration, but it's not because we knew how contentious this was. But after doing the deep dive, we also pro- felt pretty sure of ourselves that this is one where some of the ways we've supported kids in the past, they felt really good in the moment and they've gotten kids kind of up and going. Mm-hmm. But like picture clues I'm thinking of. Yeah, picture clues. And depending on those patterns in early text, and mm-hmm. we've all mm-hmm. known kids who got off to a strong start in those early levels, if you're using level text, and then it's just like, the brakes are on and they're kind of stuck. And mm-hmm. often that's levels D or E or F. Mm-hmm. And that's because they've been relying on some compensatory strategies that fall apart when text gets more difficult. Yeah, And so... Part of what has taught children to rely on those compensatory strategies is the way we've prompted them. Sure. And some of the reason we've prompted them the way we have is because many of the books we've used, the little books we've used, were actually designed to support our prompting in that way. Mm. In other words, little beginning readers that are full of words that children couldn't get to if they weren't relying on picture clues. Right. So. So how am I supposed to get them to decode a word elephant in kindergarten, right? I can see the giraffe. I can see the elephant. I can see the, well, that really leads into sixth shift, which is, yeah, we need to use more decodable text with our most beginning readers Mm. so that what we're teaching them about the code, they actually have a chance to practice. Um, I think some of the texts we relied on in the past, we might be teaching phonics, But then when it comes time to actually read in their little instructional texts, they're not having a lot of chance to apply what they're learning and what those texts call on them to do in terms of word solving. What they've learned so far in phonics isn't going to get them there. Mm. So um, and and that was a big one for me, too. I mean, I've discounted the value of decodable texts consistently for years. Mm -hmm. And well, and there are a lot of bad decodable texts out there. And so as you embrace this shift to the use of more decodable texts, and and especially with the most beginning readers, still have to be careful because we want texts that give kids something to, you know, think about and talk about. Um, we still want them to have texts that are worthwhile, yeah. even if decodable. Yeah. yeah. So I, I also want to talk, one thing that we mentioned after I sat in on your professional learning with the upper level intermediate text um, okay. was this idea about independent reading practice. And uh. as I think back, you know, on my own reading experiences as a student, you know, the Book It program was was big and um, I was reading for personal pan pizzas and um you know, I think, again, in my fifth grade classroom, 
making sure I had 25 minutes of silent, sustained reading, and I was reading my book to model and all of those things. And, you know, in my first grade classrooms, I was teaching the lessons on finding the just right book. Um, what's research indicating about the time spent in independent practice and also some of the ways that we try to motivate students to participate in those structures? Yeah, so this is a big, um, if shift five is the big one in the K2 book, um, shift six, which is about meaningful independent literacy practice is probably, you know, one of the biggies in the in the second book. And um, again, I've been a longtime advocate and still we, we are all advocates of independent reading, getting kids, um, you know, excited about books and doing lots of reading and, you know, with really worthwhile texts. Um, but it does turn out that um, some of what, you know, we've kind of operated on this idea that um, students who read more will become better readers, right? And it makes sense. Like if I practice piano more. I've got to practice piano to become a better piano player. I've got to practice swimming to become a better swimmer. I mean, it makes good sense. So give kids a lot of books and lots of time to read and they should get better at reading. But it turns out that that relationship between lots of time spent reading and becoming a good reader, it's just not as straightforward as we may have thought. And in fact, there's substantial evidence that the relationship is actually much more indirect. Mm-hmm. And as you dig into the studies that maybe, you know, if you look at individual studies, many of them that we might have thought, oh, that's self-selected independent reading. When you actually dig into it, it's the study is maybe about something slightly different. Um, but it's true that reading value volume matters and it's beneficial, but it's not enough. And the studies are 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 more correlational than they are cause and effect. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. you know, ice cream sales and shark attacks shark attacks are positively correlated. You know, so is reading a lot and being a strong reader. Mm-hmm. But you know, you could assume like, oh ice cream sales are up and that's causing shark attacks. But actually, that's not what the evidence shows. Right? <laughs> maybe hot weather is causing both of those things. Mm. You know, you were a, a Book It Kid. Mm-hmm. Personal practices. Yep. I would guess in your class of Book It Kids, some kids were really excited about reading before Book It was, was ever introduced. And some kids weren't as excited about reading before Book It. What the research shows about motivation is that sometimes those, often, those extrinsic um, motivators, they will look like they're having a positive effect in the short run. But when you take them away, oftentimes, so let's use volume of reading, for example, Oftentimes, the volume of reading will drop back to even further, drop back even further than it was before the reward. Mm. Has happened in the meantime is you're thinking about reading for pizzas, mm-hmm. right? Reading for pizzas. So reading isn't about reading. Reading is about something else that eventually goes away. Mm. And so, um. You know, getting kids motivated, it can be so tempting to rely on points and prizes and all sorts of prodding, but in the long run, they don't hold up. And so some of the other things are, you know, you might see slower slower results um, and they might be more labor intensive, but... For some kids, it's going to take some work to really get them both with the skills they need and the desire to read. But some things we can do are to make sure that all kids have access to lots of high-quality texts. Um, We love the idea of text sets, you know, texts that are 
clustered by topic um, rather than by level. Mm. So that if I have interest in a topic or I want to even develop um, knowledge about a topic, that collection of texts on the same topic can become almost like a ladder of reading for me, right? I can yeah. I can dig, start with some simpler text and the Velcro I build in those simpler texts is going to actually help me mm. to have success with other texts on that topic. Mm-hmm. And choice, you know, choice matters. And choice is a motivator for kids. But one of the things that we um, explore in the book a little bit is that doesn't mean that doesn't need to mean completely open-ended choice all the time, right? Like we're never going to be involved in um, directing the reading of kids. We actually, in the book, give teachers the permission to be a little more involved with book choice sometimes, because I think in many cases, teachers have almost come to feel like, you know, they're doing something wrong if they, um, if, if they select a book or mm. narrow choice in some way. Mm. Um, and then levels actually can be a demotivator and levels come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. Um, you know, there's all types of levels out there. And levels can have a place. Um, The most important role I think that most leveling systems can play in our classrooms is to be a resource for teachers. Mm. Teachers can't read every book. And they help us to kind of get a sense, right, of of, um, the difficulty, complexity of a text. But every leveling system is very imperfect. Mm -hmm. And... And what no leveling system can account for is what students bring to a text. Right. And again, there's this research, this baseball study, which, you know, gets to the power of knowledge and comprehension. Um, and in that study, kids who are considered to be, you know, less successful readers um, outscored more successful readers on a topic that they knew a lot about, which was baseball. Mm. And so if I'm limited by level because some assessment has said this is the ceiling of what I can read and I'm kept from reading texts that are maybe more difficult than, you know, quote unquote difficult than that, um, I'm missing opportunities because there certainly are texts that I can read on topics that are motivating to me. Um, And so students bring a lot to that picture. And that's part of why. You know, you, you see that, oh, level J, I thought the student was a level J, but boy, this text was easy and this text is so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, level J is not level J. Right. Um, well, and I've, I've, I've been in, you know, like, like you, I'm sure, have, you've had the opportunity to be in many different schools and many different districts. And, you know, I, I've seen it happen more than once where even the entire media center has become leveled. And I've um, unfortunately... I've been a part of hearing conversations where a student is choosing a book of interest and being told, oh, no, 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 you can't pick from that bucket. You have to pick from this bucket. Um, And just seeing the defeat on that student's face when they're like, but I really want to read this book. And there's not a book at pizza in the world that can overcome the message that child just got about themselves as a reader. And you know, there's, there's the motivation of wanting to read this book. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, And it's true. We, I mean, children have texts they're reading independently and we are selecting instructional texts and hopefully we've got small group instruction going on in classrooms, you know, in, in all of our elementary classrooms. And we're able to choose those texts for small group instruction where we're choosing texts that will definitely challenge kids and also support them in getting, um, in, in, in building more skills. Oftentimes in small group, we've, we've actually used texts that, um, it's one of the places we've limited students and kept them from grade level complex text, Mm -hmm. (laughs) which it's a missed opportunity because we're right there yeah. and we be the scaffold. Yeah. And there are lots of ways we can scaffold students into more complex text. And when we keep kids um, sort of 
we put the ceiling on them with a level, we are just, it, it just becomes a perpetual cycle of them not having the opportunity to become a grade level reader. Right, right. They're, they're sort of kept from grade level material. Yes. And so... Um, I'm thinking yeah. on the other end, too, when you have a student that can read uh, beyond a grade level, but I've seen school districts, too, where say, this is the cap for the end of fourth grade, <laughs> and you cannot go beyond this, or this is the cap for the end of second grade. Um, and-, and, of course, teacher judgment is so important, right? And, of course, you've got second graders who can read at a 12th grade reading level, and there are texts that aren't going to be appropriate for them. Yes, yes. Yeah thinking about the content. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But I think one of the things that I think one of the the, the real downsides of um, the whole leveling mania is we've really we've almost protected kids from challenge in some ways. Um, and and challenge is important. You know, this productive effort is important. And when you're motivated to read a text, you will be willing to, mm, you know, mm-hmm. put forth that productive effort. Yeah. So. Well, there's, there's a lot. lot. Yes, there's, there's so there. much <laughs> to think about, so much to unpack. And like I said, I'm going to link all the resources and how to find the text because there's a lot in your two books about some real practical strategies on, um, you know, what to do. But one thing I really appreciate about your style of professional learning is giving us that next step, that focusing on what can I do now? And so as people are listening to this conversation, what what can you offer as kind of a first next step um, or somewhere that they could go to start if they're thinking about reevaluating some of their own literacy practices? Yeah. Well, um, I don't want to just give a shameless plug for our books, but um, that's why we wrote these books. Mm-hmm. These books, if you kind of think about, you know, this sometimes the term science of reading, um, and, and that term is in the title of these books, um, when people, it can be really overwhelming to kind of think, okay, people are talking about all of this stuff and there are all of these possible things to read. What we tried to do for teachers is do a lot of the deep dive and a lot of the reading. And our goal was to write a book that would be this really soft landing point, a really um, an invitation and an entry point. And we kind of think of these books as, you know, they're broken into six shifts or six key areas, each of them. And within each of those shifts, we offer... um, what we call high leverage instructional routines, but we chose instructional routines that are literally, you could do this tomorrow. None of them really require financial investment other than time. Mm-hmm. It is a financial investment, I understand, um, but you don't need to go begging for money to buy something. Yeah. Um, they're meant to be, um, you could try this tomorrow. Of course, you could work to refine it the next day and still work to refine it after that. Mm -hmm. But we really intended for this to be a collection of starting points. Each chapter in these books starts with the first half of the chapter unpacks the why or the science, and we use the format of misunderstandings and clearing up misunderstandings. Then the second half is where we offer those action steps. And the reason we wrote it like that is we think you really need to understand the why before you're going to feel that motivation to make a shift to practice because nobody's looking for more work to do. Right. right? Please help me what unearth I mean? everything I've ever yeah. done. That sounds right. like a great yeah. idea. <laughs> so, um, But we do suggest, you know, if you can read the book, just read it through, then step back and say, okay, there are six buckets here. Which of these? do I think I might want to dig into? And what's that one small action there I can take? You know, to get going, though, the one small action you could take is just make a decision about how you might learn more yourself. And one thing you might do is say to a colleague or a partner, you know, want to do a learning journey with me? Mm -hmm. Want to dig deeper? 
um, want to read a book, we've got um, book study resources on our site um, to support both books. We do an online class. I think um, Sourceball has had some opportunities um, related to the books. So yes, um, but back to those six commitments. We're just huge believers that momentum starts one educator, one decision, one next step at a time. You can't do a whole bunch of things at once. Mm-hmm. Just mm-hmm. find a starting point and um, be good to yourself as you get going and make, make space to try some things and, you know, feel your own perfection in, in trying something new. Make space for that, that imperfection. Nice. And if you're feeling like a lonely only in your school, um, we have networks here. Um, if you're in in our region, yeah. where, like you said, we have folks that have committed to taking a look at this book and studying it together. So if you if you feel like you can't find that thought partner in your own district, um, we'd be happy to provide a network of folks that are digging in right here. So yeah. thank you for mentioning that. Uh, what else are you reading, listening to, or watching? Any resources that you might recommend? And I always tell folks, you know, could be something just for fun, uh, or it could be related to the topic. Oh, well, I thought you were asking about Netflix. <laughs> no. well, people share Netflix recommendations. Uh, it absolutely can be because. Oh, actually, we should be taking Netflix recommendations because we are out of things to watch. <laughs> <laughs> All right, email us you know, at. Yeah, really. I would love some suggestions. Um, I There are some podcasts that I think are, you know, if you're looking for starting points, I just think podcasts are free mm-hmm. and they're easy to, you know, weave together with washing the dishes or doing the laundry or waiting in the carpool, you know. Yep. So um, Natalie Wexler has a, um, a podcast called Knowledge Matters. And she's, Natalie Wexler is the author of a book called The Knowledge Gap, and she's a co-author of a book called The Writing Revolution, which kind of looks at the writing side of this. I'm a big fan of hers, but her podcast is really powerful. If you think about the simple view of reading or Scarborough's reading rope, hers really on the, the language comprehension side of things. I mean, she's such an advocate for knowledge building. Nice. If you haven't listened to the podcast, Sold a Story... And Emily Hanford is the producer of that one. And that one really is focused much more on the word reading side of things. It's looking at how we teach children to read words. And that one might, you know, trigger some feelings in you. Mm-hmm. Um, I I recommend it because I think it's just important for every elementary educator in this country to listen to that podcast and decide for yourself what you're going to make of it. Mm. But um, she really did a lot of deep research um, into what might have kind of gotten us off the tracks here. And so those are two I would recommend. Amplify also just has a great potluck of topics on their um, on their podcast, their Science of Reading podcast. I think it was one of the first podcasts to to focus on that area. And they have really great guests all the time. And so nice. those are some of my Beautiful. Well, I will make sure that those are also linked to the show notes so that our listeners can dig into those as well. Uh, well is it already time to be done? Because this was really fun. Oh, well, you know, you can always come back. That's an open <laughs> invitation. Okay. <laughs> but it was fun. And I'm I'm so um, thankful for you making the time. Um, I know you have a very busy schedule. And with your new book out, you're, you're all over the country. And so the fact that you... Um, built in time for us and for our listeners, both regionally and um, and beyond, um, to really get curious and be open. And what did you say? to build those bridges and not those walls as we're thinking about? Because I think you know, ultimately, if we dig down to our values, we we all care about kids. We want to see kids succeed. And so now, thank you for giving us some some tools to do that, maybe even better. Well, I am a big fan of just the work of Sourcewell in general, and so it's it's a true pleasure. I kind of think of this as right in my backyard, and it's always just a pleasure to support local educators. Then, so 
Thanks for having me. I appreciate that. Thank you so much, Carrie. That's all we have for this episode of EdSoul, a podcast for educators by educators. If you are loving the show, make sure you share it with a friend. Your personal recommendations are powerful. And if you really love this show, we would love it if you could rate and review us within your preferred podcast app. Your ratings and reviews will help other people discover the show and benefit from these great strategies as well. Check out our show notes for a recap of this episode and a list of resources mentioned or referenced. If you're a social media type, connect with us on Facebook. Search Education Solutions Educators Group and request to join. If you're an e-newsletter type, you should subscribe to our education e-newsletter by emailing us at education at sourcewell-mn.gov. The e-newsletter goes out monthly and includes updates and events for our local educators. Special thanks to our Sourcewell Education Solutions office support team and multimedia for your production support. This podcast is brought to you by Sourcewell. Sourcewell is one of nine service cooperatives in Minnesota. We are a self-sustaining government organization that partners with schools, local government, and nonprofits to boost student and community success. Learn more at mn.sourcewell.org.